Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and inviting you to listen to our latest podcast episode number 922 with Dr. Ran Anbar about his new book entitled Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis, A Journey to the Center. This podcast number 922 is brought to you by Dr. Rosie Ward, author of a new book entitled Rehumanizing the Workplace, Future-Proofing Your Organization While Restoring Hope, Well-Being, and Performance. If you want to know more about Dr. Rosie Ward, her programs, and her new book, please visit her website at www.drrosieward.com. That's www.drrosieward.com. And now for a featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview with Dr. Ran Anbar about his new book entitled Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis, A Journey to the Center. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining us from La Jolla, just right down the street, is Dr. Ran Anbar. And he has a book that I'm particularly interested in um, because I actually uh, have hypnosis performed on me. Although he does hypnosis on children to cure ailments. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm great. Good morning to you. Well, this book, Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis, A Journey to the Center, really is, uh, it's packed full of stories, great stories that are great examples for our listeners to understand really what it is that you do, how you do it, and how you've helped so many families with children uh, overcome Everything from pulmonary challenges to anxiety to all kinds of things. But I'm going to let our listeners know a little bit about you. Dr. Anbar, MD, FAAP, is board certified in both pediatric pulmonology and general pediatrics, offering hypnosis and counseling services at Center Point Medicine in La Jolla, California, and Syracuse, New York. Uh, Dr. Ann Barr also is a fellow and approved consultant of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. Uh, he is a leader in clinical hypnosis and in 20 years of experience has allowed him to successfully treat over 5,000 children. Uh, he also serves as the professor of pediatrics and medicine and director of pediatric pulmonology at uh, Upstate Medical University, SUNY, is it S-U-N-Y, University in Syracuse, New York, for 21 years. Well, it's a great bio, but more importantly for my listeners, if you want to learn more, go to center, C-E-N-T-E-R, point, P-O-I-N-T, medicine, M-E-D-I-C-I-N-E, dot com. There you can learn more about um, Dr. Anbar. You can learn more about the book. You can also learn more about the services that he provides. And that's what we're going to talk about. It's not just the services, but really just the power of hypnosis today. Um, If you would, please tell a little bit about your story as a pediatric pulmonology treating children with pulmonary disorders and your reason for embracing hypnosis as a method of treating children with pulmonary disorders and other diseases, because you know, it's not a normal transition for a regular MD to say, okay, I'm going to embrace hypnosis. Um, we were talking about 
Steve Berman, the gentleman that I go to that's right here in Del Mar. But um, I'm just curious as to the listeners would want to know, how did you get over there? (laughs) How'd you make that jump? Well, 25 years ago, I was practicing pulmonology when a young man was referred to me. He had very bad allergies to milk products. And twice in his life, he almost died from eating a milk product. Um, And I was seeing him for his asthma. And he came in one day and he says, you know, lately when I've been smelling cheeseburgers, I've been developing asthma attacks. I thought it was a strange sounding symptom. And I I, uh, wondered if a milk molecule could be wafting through the air and affecting him, which it can't do, by the way. Um, And I asked him, well, can you imagine eating a cheeseburger, which is something he could not do in real life? And within seconds, he was having a lot of trouble breathing. And I thought to myself, oh, no, he's going to have a terrible attack. I said, stop it. So he did. I said, whoa, what what just happened here? Can you imagine yourself into an illness? And then the immediate corollary question is, can you imagine yourself out of an illness? Later, I found out what was going on was hypnosis. That was my dramatic introduction to the field. Well, that's quite a dramatic introduction. And, and uh, you know, you never know exactly why certain things are brought to you, right? And if you are curious enough, you go down the path, your life changed as a result of meeting a very special children, uh, Harry and Paul, you refer to them in the books. Can you tell the story and the impact that these children had on your career? Because there were two of them. And um, I think the listener would like to know the story and the impact. Sure. Harry came first. Harry, I met when I was 16 years old. I was volunteering at the Children's Hospital at Stanford, um, and he was 12. Uh, He had a disease called cystic fibrosis, which in those days was, it's still a lethal disease. But in those days, the average uh, patient lived to be in the late teens. It's a lung disease that uh, causes a lot of mucus that damages the lungs. And because of Harry, I ended up going into medicine, becoming a pulmonologist. I wanted to find a cure for cystic fibrosis. He was an early guide for me. Uh, Paul is a young man with a cheeseburger allergy. Okay. um, He asked me, well, I wanted to send him, when I recognized he was doing hypnosis, I wanted to send him to a psychologist who would teach him hypnosis, figuring if he could learn how to control his mind, it might help his health. Uh, He didn't want to go see a psychologist. He said, I'd rather work with you. And I said, that's nice, but I don't know anything about it. And And he said, I don't care, teenager. Uh, so I went to my friend, uh, Dr. David Keith, who was a psychiatrist upstate, and asked if he could back me up, and he said he would. And that's when I started learning about hypnosis. I uh, read a lot about it, and I practiced with Paul for a good year. And a lot of the things I talk about in the book started off with Paul. I should tell you that uh, Paul tragically died a year later as a result of exposure to a milk product. And uh, after his death, I went to his family's home, and I spoke with his parents, and I told them that uh, Paul's work will be my work. Paul wanted to be a pharmacist and help people. And and my work with hypnosis is a testimony to Paul. And the book is dedicated to him. Well, again, you've had these crossings in your life and people that have come into your life, which, you know, um, Joseph Campbell's story about, you know, you go out and you journey and the journey basically takes you and you find somebody and there's a career change path or something happens. Um, and you get help along the way. And in your case, you, you got a lot of help. 
And, you know, uh, my best friend's daughter-in-law, you were speaking of Stanford and cystic fibrosis, um, had cystic fibrosis, still does. Um, But Stanford did a double lung and heart transplant on her. And I ran a campaign to help raise some money to help the family. And I didn't know that that even was something that anyone could do. And she today is still alive and running triathlons and doing everything pretty normal and had a baby and a child. And it's a phenomenal story, although the symptoms now are coming back again. It's it's starting to slowly creep back in. So, you know, CF is is a tough disease to fight. Um, and as you said, uh, life expectancy is shorter than normal. Uh, but, you know, to actually get a double lung and heart transplant at Stanford, wow, I just like was blown away. Well, to update your listeners, in the last uh, 30 years, and the major part of my medical career, uh, cystic fibrosis therapy has advanced a great deal. There are now drugs that are almost curative. And really? So the average person these days lives into their late 40s. Yeah. And I, children who are born with it now could have a normal life expectancy because of the advances in the field. So I don't want to leave a misimpression from the early 70s. And now in the 2020s, uh, we're doing much, much better in treating that disease. Well, you're saying that you they can get these drugs and take them for a lifetime. And the reality is if they start them early enough, uh, it can extend their life expectancy quite a bit or maybe even normal. Right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. That's it, it's it is really a, a testament to our medical community and the drug companies and everybody who are doing this intensive research. Um, we we live in uh, unprecedented times that way. And I just I want to state that because I have a son who has chronic myelogenous leukemia and started on Gleevec. And if it hadn't been for Gleevec, now Sprycell, and he's now had it 22 years and has lived with leukemia for 22 years with those drugs. So pretty, pretty interesting what these drugs are now doing to treat these uh, chronic conditions. Yep. Since we're talking about this, I want to also acknowledge the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation that spearheaded a lot of this research and the CF community, all these patients, thousands of patients participated in drug trials to bring the current drugs to market. So it really was a group, a team effort. Yeah, it, it always is. Uh, and there has to be people willing to be part of that, uh, those trial drugs. And you mentioned that hypnosis is nearly as old as the history of civilization. You say part of the global spiritual and healing traditions dating back to ancient Egypt, Persia, China, India, and Rome. Can you explain why hypnosis is so effective at tapping into the subconscious, allowing us to reprogram our thoughts? Well, what hypnosis, hypnosis can do many things. Um, one of the things you could do with it is to park your conscious mind in a, in a calm activity. And by so parking, the subconscious is better able to express itself. And the subconscious can express itself in many different ways as well. It can express itself in in, uh, thoughts. It can express itself in imagery. It can express itself in feelings. And uh, all of the the long history of hypnosis involved different ways of allowing the subconscious to express itself. Our conscious mind is fairly limited. We can't handle too much information. 
and the brain, the subconscious brain, uh, filters and digests the inputs that we get and feeds it to our conscious brain in a way um, that we can understand. So hypnosis allows us to short circuit the system and to interact sometimes with the subconscious directly. Yeah, it is amazing. What, what are your thoughts? Maybe not for children, uh, but in society at large, we're seeing people with PTSD and various diseases um, actually using microdosing uh, drugs. And in, in in our case, you know, let's say LSD, uh, very very small microdoses amounts, and they're seeing amazing results. I know Michael Pollan uh, from the Bay Area, who's written all the books on health wrote about it. We have lots of people writing about it today. Where do you stand uh, as it relates to, you know, high anxiety, PTSD, um, psychological disorders, which are totally debilitating uh, for somebody to maybe take that kind of therapy? So I'm not an expert in this, but I'll tell you what, what I've, my viewpoint is this. I think that um, psychedelics and certain drugs uh, do the same function as hypnosis. They park the conscious mind. That's what I think. And I think, yeah. for example, the hallucinations that can accompany psychedelic experience, I think, uh, come up from the subconscious and through the subconscious. And you become more aware of them because your conscious mind is not filtering them out, or they're not filtered out before it gets to the conscious mind. I have the belief that uh, the subconscious mind can tap into realms beyond ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, when we do use a psychedelic drug, um, you become more aware of those realms, which is why people have these amazing experiences and, and new perspectives following such a, a, an interaction. All that being said, I think if you're gifted at hypnosis, you can achieve many of those same results by, uh, without use of a drug. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I actually believe that there aren't many, you know, a lot of people would be afraid to go down that path and because of maybe the repercussions or after effects of the drugs and not knowing it, but to go in and get hypnosis, whether it's on your child or or you, um, is a completely safe, logical way to approach this. And I can speak from experience. It, it works. Um, it works in so many different wonderful ways. Now, you state that the physical and the mental health are deeply interwoven. You've said that. How do you determine when you will use hypnosis as well as more conventional methods, including drugs, to treat patients? Or is it the standard protocol in most of your cases to combine, let's say, a drug for something and hypnosis? So if this child happens to be on a drug, are we keeping him on the drug or are we trying to actually get him off of that, him or her, off of the drug and have hypnosis basically cure the condition? So that's a complex question because the answer will vary depending on the situation that the patient is dealing with. And this is why I think it's important to state here that whoever is doing hypnosis with you should either be an expert in treating the condition they're working on without use of hypnosis or they're working in conjunction with, let's say, a physician who understands the condition well, because you don't want to treat someone with hypnosis if a medication is better, and you don't want to treat somebody with a medication if hypnosis is better, but you have to be an expert to be able to guide that. I I should back up just a moment. We've talked about, you've mentioned doing hypnosis on people. 
hypnosis is done with people. With, people, I love that. With. All hypnosis is yeah. self-hypnosis. Okay, I got it. Got it. Okay. And just to clear, we haven't talked really about misconception. I want to spend a moment talking about that. So people hear hypnosis, they think, oh, some magician is going to make me cluck like a chicken and some evildoer will control my mind. Yeah. And that's all fake. Yeah. That is not what hypnosis is. No. All hypnosis is self-hypnosis. The only one in control of your mind is yourself. Hypnosis can help you better control your mind, which is what we're talking about. In terms of your question about how do I decide whether medication or hypnosis is necessary, it depends again on the medical condition. So, for example, there's an entity called vocal cord dysfunction in which the vocal cords shut off or close off when you're trying to breathe in. It's very hard to breathe. Yeah, you had an example of a girl who was a runner. Um, that that we're going to get to actually it's one of my questions but um but you know her case was is this was extreme correct and well what was extreme is the the what the physician did to her was extreme because they tried to cure her with medications and for vocal cord dysfunction which happens because you're stressing yourself out too much medications don't work and then they tried to cure her by taking out her tonsils and then they wanted to inject her with Botox, the Botox, Botox. And that's also unnecessary because for that kind of condition, using hypnosis to teach her how to relax was curative. Um, in the case of a child with asthma, as an example, um, sometimes medications are very much needed to control the asthma, but teaching a child how to relax can also control the asthma, sometimes better than even the medication. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a hypnotic technique involving imagining the very first time you had trouble breathing and teaching a younger version of yourself to um, not to panic at the time you couldn't breathe from the first asthma attack. And sometimes that makes all your symptoms go away. So mm-hmm. if you can do that, then you can actually um, take away medications. In other cases, let's say somebody with cancer, they need their chemotherapy or they need the radiation therapy, but hypnosis can be very helpful in helping them cope with the discomfort of the illness or discomfort of medical procedures. So in that kind of patient, you'll want to use both medication and hypnosis. And finally, there are patients that you wouldn't want to use hypnosis for. Uh, Somebody comes in with a headache um, and has never really been worked up by a physician, should be seen by a physician first. Maybe they have a brain tumor. Using Mm -hmm. hypnosis there would be malpractice, would be very bad because you might delay the diagnosis being made and the patient could even do very badly. So that's why you need to know what you're doing when you're using hypnosis for medical issues. Well, you know, look, the suggestive um, thoughts that a hypnotist, let's say, puts a patient under is extremely powerful, uh, powerful enough to, as you said, uh, mitigate some of these challenges associated with pulmonary conditions and other conditions. Um, and I totally believe that. And I think that, you know, the follow on treatment, if the hypnosis works, is a long practice. This is my personal commentary of meditation, um, because it works so well at calming the whole body uh, that it, it would be good. Now, you list in the book clues that suggest a child's emotion may be related to their physical symptoms. Can you tell us what some of those signs are? And what a patient or a parent uh, might want to look for in their child as far as the list. You put a list in the book um, of those. So a child who um, gets 
very emotional as a result of their symptoms suggest that their emotions may be impacting the symptom. A child whose emotions impact the symptoms, or they get upset and they get their symptom, that suggests emotions are at play. As symptoms that tend to stop when you fall asleep are more likely to have emotions involved. And then symptoms that don't get better with medications are quite likely to have emotions involved. I will tell you, the majority of medical practice involves dealing with symptoms that are the result of emotions. The majority, this is not some weird kids. And and if you go to the emergency room, the people come in with chest pain and with headaches and stomach aches. The majority of those have psychologically driven symptoms. Of course, you have to make sure they're not having a heart attack, right? They're not having bleeding ulcer, but those are infrequent. Yeah, no, I, I totally am in your lane. I agree with everything that you're saying because the power of the mind over the physical body, um, I, I, I speak from personal experience, having had uh, long bouts with anxiety attacks. And those anxiety attacks, I couldn't determine or tr- how they were being triggered. But I went to Scripps and they, this goes back into the seventies, right? I mean, I, well, let's see, it was the early eighties. I take that back. And they wired me up and put on the sensors, put it on my brain. And I could see on the screen what my body was actually doing neurologically. And I could see myself having one of these panic attacks. And I then went, did start doing meditation and the meditation for now 40 years, I've never had an anxiety attack again, but the anxiety attacks were real. You know, you feel like you're having a heart attack. You feel like you're, you're claustrophobic. You feel like the world's coming in on you. You're, you know, there are all kinds of symptoms associated with that. Um, now you, you talked about the vocal cord thing and that's Kayla. This was this middle school student, um, an athlete who developed this perplexing crisis to almost every cross-country event, which was the vocal cord dysfunction. Um, and I think you've already addressed it. So I'm going to kind of move on beyond that a question. But, 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 maybe, you, but maybe. you treated her with hypnosis and it worked tremendously well because the story was fantastic. Well, if I may tell you another story with another child with vocal cord dysfunction, and this story will tell you how much psychology can affect symptoms. This was a 12-year-old boy who developed vocal cord dysfunction, but unlike Kayla, who only developed her problem when uh, she was exercising, he had it all the time, and he couldn't. He had he spoke very softly because his vocal cords were uh, touching each other, and he had been through speech therapy and psychological therapy. He came to see me. I taught him hypnosis, which is teaching him how to imagine relaxing in a safe place, imagining all of his senses and teaching how to calm down. And typically that's enough to treat vocal cord dysfunction. In his case, it didn't make much of a difference. He still was having trouble breathing. So then I taught him how to interact with his subconscious. And there are many ways of doing that. A simple way is having the subconscious move fingers for you, one for yes, one for no, one for I don't want to say. Then you can ask questions. So talking to his subconscious, his subconscious said he knew why the boy was having trouble uh, breathing, and he was willing to type with me. The subconscious can actually type, which is another way of interacting with the subconscious. And then you can have full conversations. And the story was that the year before I met him, 
this boy was so despondent, he almost committed suicide. He almost hung himself. And he didn't, obviously. And But he couldn't believe how close he came, and he was feeling guilty about it. And the reason he had the vocal cord dysfunction is he was still guilty about almost having hung himself. When we talk through that, and I point out to him that this is a year later, he's, he's overcome that, the vocal cord dysfunction stopped. He, his breathing became normal. But the next week, he developed blindness. He couldn't see. And the parents were quite panicky, but I brought him back in and I talked to his subconscious. Now, even though he was blind, he was able to see the typing. And the subconscious explained he made him blind so that he couldn't see hangers in his room and remember that he tried to hang himself. So we talked through that and his blindness resolved. And the next week he became deaf. Brought him back, talked to his subconscious. The subconscious said, well, he didn't want to hear things that will remind him of that he tried to hang himself. So we talked through that and he could hear again. And the next week he came in and he couldn't move his arms. Mm. talked through that and the reason was he didn't want to hang himself again so he couldn't move his arms we talked through that and then he was able to move his arms and then he was fine thereafter it's been a couple years he's been fine this case which is not in the book so you get a bonus here um, illustrates how much psychology can affect symptoms and sometimes how complex it is to unravel the symptoms most patients fortunately it's much simpler two-thirds of my patients teach them to relax and they're much better. But sometimes they're quite complex like this young man and it takes a while to unravel. You know, it, the, the state of the journey of a child from birth to adolescence uh, is wrought with all kinds of uh, challenges and so on. And I'm just wondering, you know, because sometimes this, they say this is a call for attention. Uh, they're, they're looking for attention psychologically. So it manifests in this ailment or whatever, so they can get the attention. I don't know what birth order. I'm not certain that that makes any difference one way or the other. Do you have a comment about this, this whole journey from being born to going into adolescence, uh, trying to get attention because you're either competing against siblings or something occurred along the way? where a father or mother just said you weren't enough, you were never enough. It seems to be an ongoing issue that um, all, I think it's a disease within society, right? I don't, I don't think it's uh, that any of us, and I should say that not any of us, but a very small percentage of us where we were just praised so much that we were always enough. (laughs) So do you believe that some of that manifests as a result of that journey? And then it expresses itself in a disease where they can be noticed. Um, so, I don't know. I, I think that can be the case. I would say to you, any psychologically driven symptom, which is many, many symptoms, has a reason for that. There's okay. some benefit to the patient or, or the patient expressing themselves in some way. Okay. So in the case that we've discussed so far, the girl who was stressing herself out and with, with sports and couldn't breathe, the couldn't breathe was telling her, I'm worried about doing well in sports. The boy who couldn't breathe because he had almost hung himself is saying, I'm really having trouble dealing with the trauma of almost having hung myself. But yes, there are children who develop symptoms because that's the only way they get attention. And sometimes it's not even selfish. Sometimes they draw attention onto themselves 
to get the attention away from their parents. I had a child once who came to me. I was a fifth medical center. Uh, he had uh, headaches, chest pain, and stomach aches. And nobody could find a cause for these symptoms. When I, the last medical center sent him to me said, they knew I did hypnosis and they figured it was psychological. And I thought it was psychological as well because stress causes all those things, headaches, chest pain, and stomach aches. And I told the parents, hey, let me teach your child hypnosis. If I'm correct that these are all related to stress, he'll get much better. And the child I could tell was interested. The parents said, we're both university professors. We believe in the mind-body connection, but we're not going to let you teach our child to do hypnosis. And they left. And I'm thinking, huh, why would parents who have gone to five different medical centers not want me to teach their child how to help himself get better? And I could think of a few reasons. One reason is they would feel foolish because they'd been looking for so long. Another reason might be that they were having trouble in their marriage. And by focusing on the child's illness, uh, they didn't, it helped them cope with their trouble. Right. And that kind of scenario, and I've seen that in other cases, if the child may not get better either because the child needs to play that sick role within the family. So it can get actually quite complex. So your counseling is not only with the patient, but it's with the parents of the patients as well, because you obviously are um, working with them along the way, uh, correct? Correct. So family members often play a role in the patient. If yeah. I may, uh, one time I worked with an 85-year-old lady, and the only reason I was working with her is she had habit cough, a pulmonary problem that resolves with hypnosis. Habit cough is a cough without a physical cause, mm-hmm. and it can last for years, as it had in hers. And uh, she was referred to me by her pulmonologist and asked, can I please, please help her? So I said, sure. So I met with her, and I taught her hypnosis, and her cough improved. But like many other physical symptoms, as we got to know each other, we found out her cough got worse when she became frustrated with her husband. Mm. And the husband had worked all his life, but he was retired, and she had worked all her life, and she wanted some help from him in the house, and he wouldn't give her the help. He wasn't used to doing that. And she was really aggravated with him. And that's when her cough would manifest itself. And I ended up sending him to marriage therapy at the age of 84. At the age of 80-something. Well, you know, like a lot of marriages go a long time. doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means that we've developed uh, uh, ways to tolerate, right? Um, now you state that nearly every aspect of medicine has an artistic component as well as a scientific one, um, but that it is rarely discussed because creativity and sensitivity are more difficult to observe and describe. Um, measure and replicate um, that pure science. If you would speak with us about the power of the words with empathy and creativity to help heal patients. So all good physicians are careful about what they say, and they're aware that how they present information uh, will affect the patient. So for example, if I'm going to put you on a medication and I say, hey, let's try this medicine and see how it works. If it doesn't work, We'll try something else. That's going to get one result from the patient as opposed to, hey, let's do this medication. It's helped many of my patients. I believe it's going to help you. It's going to get a different result. This kind of approach is not discussed in medical schools. Of course not. (laughs) It's not discussed by pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies. And yet is vital in terms of getting the best results for your patients. And that's just a small example. So, 
when you learn how to do hypnosis as a, as a clinician, it sensitizes you how to talk to people. So, for example, we will talk about um, when your stomach improves, then you can resume your life as opposed yeah. to uh, when your stomach stops hurting. Because if you say stops hurting, the, the patient hears hurt, and that makes the stomach feel worse. So just simple words like that can make a big difference. And how we talk to ourselves, same kind of thing. When you say, I'm afraid I'm going to fail my test tomorrow, you're more apt to do poorly than if you say, I would like to do well on my test tomorrow. Agreed. And that's actually the first lesson when I meet a patient that I teach them about the power of words. Well, this show is around personal development. And for years, I've done interviews with authors on you know, everything from affirmations to mantras to meditation to whatever it is. And all of these tools, all of these processes, all of these techniques are to reprogram the mind um, such that the mind is not, you know, in this case, kind of controlling the outcome. In your case, you're getting to the subconscious mind, which is being reprogrammed. And I love it. Now, you're aware that hypnosis works best when the children you treat have buy-in for what you're doing. We just talked about this because of the way you say it. You use exercises to get them to experience the power of the mind. One example in the book was applied kinesiology. I mean, at least that's what I assumed. You said, lift up your arm, push your arm down, associated with being strong or weak. Um, Can you explain how this works and the effects it has on your patients, because it is the power of suggestion. You tell me I'm push against my arm. You know, I've had that done by numerous doctors, but yeah, tell us. So a little. Uh, the demonstration we show is that the child puts out their arm and I, I tell them to resist me. When I say, when they say to themselves, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, they become weak. When they say I'm strong, they remain strong. And when they say, I'm not weak, they become weak as well. And then we discussed that the, the main word we use is what the mind focuses on. And then there's a corollary to that demonstration. I, I have them hold out their arm and I say to them, you're weak, and they get weak. And I say to them, you're strong, and they become strong. And then we talk about how they take other people's input in, and that affects their strength as well. And therefore, they want to surround themselves with positive people. I will have the parent in the room for these demonstrations because the parent needs to learn how to talk differently to their child. Instead of saying, stop yelling, the parent might say, "Become stay, stay calmer, become calmer. And then I finally, I teach the child, you can block this effect. I ask them, how do you think you can block? When I say you're weak, how can you block me? They pretty quickly figure out they can tell themselves that they're strong and then they stay strong. And then I tell them, have you ever dealt with any bullies who made you feel bad? And they'll say, yeah. And I said, who's responsible for your feeling bad? And some of them will say the bully. Some people will say me. And they ultimately, yeah, you're responsible because you let it in. If you don't want to, you can block it. And nobody can affect you without your permission. And that's the first day lesson, which is a really powerful lesson. You mentioned applied kinesiology. I want to say a little warning for the listeners. Um, what I've learned with, with this arm strength demonstration is that my beliefs as the practitioner affects the arm's response, mm-hmm. even when I'm not aware of it. 
my subconscious belief can affect arm response. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the field reasons that applied kinesiology does not have the best of reputations is because people are doing like testing for food allergies. And they say, oh, you must be allergic to this food because your arm went down. However, what they don't realize is that if that's a practitioner thought there might be an allergic reaction, they can cause the arm to go down without even being aware they're doing it. I learned about this myself when I had a medical student stand behind me and I was testing out whether patients get arm, the arm gets strong or weak. What I expected is what the patient did, but it had nothing to do with what the patient was thinking. So I learned that, that, it's, that that's part of it. So to be careful when you use it. Yeah, very much so. And, um, but it is used a lot by chiropractors and other yes. folks to test for allergies or to test for muscle weakness or, you know, what, but that is being used. But I totally concur that the words you use are so powerful. And the way in which a physician who wears a white coat speaks with a patient because he speaks from authority can actually have either a positive or negative impact on the outcome of that patient as the way in which they address that patient's conditions. So the little simple changes in the words that you used in your example were so important. And you speak about identifying your patient's pain and state that this becomes complicated with the fact that the emotional and psychological factors hold sway over the way pain presents itself. What are some of the techniques that you use to identify the pain and how does this differ from conventional medicine and the tools that we use to identify the patient's pain? Well, um, the pain is subjective. So the patient's pain is defined by the patient. That's the first thing. So I'll ask the patient. Um, And then uh, the tools to deal with the pain involve teaching the patients to redirect their thinking um, either by distracting themselves from the pain, for example, by imagining being in a safe, comfortable place or directly thinking about the pain and maybe imagining a pain or a comfort dial. I don't want to say pain dial, a comfort dial that if you dial up, if you dial up, you're in more discomfort. If you dial down, you're in less discomfort and the patients can actually modulate their pain. And before we move too far from the word of the discussion about words, uh, making a diagnosis can be harmful. Doctors make diagnoses because they're trying to figure out how to best treat you and they can bill for the insurance company. But if you are told you have a certain diagnosis, some patients or many patients just take this to heart. This is what they I claim have. it. They claim it. <laughs> and they believe it can't be changed. Yeah. Yeah. And that is so wrong. I fell into that same trap. One point, my doctor told me, you have familial hypercholesterolemia. You have high cholesterol. It's genetic. Great. Nothing I could do about it. Well, that's wrong. I learned later in life, when I, after I lost a lot of weight, that my cholesterol became completely normal. Mm-hmm. So um, what I have is a familial tendency to high cholesterol, but that doesn't mean I can't do anything about it. And so too often, uh, doctors by giving us a diagnosis, make us feel trapped in the into that diagnosis. Well, epigenetics, look, you can walk around and decide you're going to believe what he says or not believe what he or she says. And in your case, because you're a physician, you get that you had the ability to rebuke um, that, that uh, authority word about familial uh, cholesterol conditions, um, you know, and so I, I understand because I came from a family with, all kinds of things associated with cholesterol and 
heart disease and so on. Um, but that doesn't mean it has to be you. Uh, so just because it was in the genetics and it depends, a lot of people say, oh, it's genetics, it's genetics, it's genetics. No, no, you're an individual soul. You were born into this world the way you were born in. And your history plays an important role. How you eat, how you exercise, all those are factors we could talk about. Now, but you end your book, and this is my kind of my last uh, question here, with a with Paul, your patient, having handwritten a poem uh, that he disavowed knowledge of having written the poem. Um, and you, it's nicely typed in your book, by the way. And you comment about uh, was the p- problems are worked out in the subconscious, and then the answer is delivered into awareness. Can you tell the story and the awareness that you believe Paul came to as a result of this poem? Because it's like he said, well, I didn't write the poem, but in essence, he did. Well, his, sub- his subconscious did. Yes. And poetry is really interesting. Some people say they channel their poems. Yeah. Their subconscious says it channels the poems. It says, I'm not writing it either. It comes from outside of me. Actually, a lot of great poets have talked about uh, channeling poetry. So it's an interesting concept. Remember, I talked to you earlier about the idea that uh, in our subconscious, we have ability to communicate perhaps with something outside of us. Um, In Paul's case, the, the poem actually predicted his death. And, yeah. and he, uh, uh, we actually talked about it at some length, um, and uh, he wanted to understand uh, what it meant to him, and I helped interpret it. So uh, the subconscious, maybe at some level, knew what was going to happen. Maybe I knew at some level he was going to die because I sent him to Make-A-Wish uh, four months before his death. Make-A-Wish is an organization typically for terminally ill children, but at that time, they also took in children who were at risk of death. And I argued he was at risk because he had bad milk allergy. And they, they actually took him under, after some, a twist of their arm. He went to the uh, NBA finals of the Utah Jazz against the Chicago Bulls in 1998, which was his wish. Um, so maybe I knew at some level that it's going to come to this. And maybe I knew at some level I'd write this book because we, Paul and I talked about um, that he was teaching me so much and that I would write a book about it. And this book is a fulfillment of that promise. Well, it's a great way to kind of bring your book, uh, bring closure to your book, I should say, um, because Paul did pass away, as you had mentioned. Um, and the reality though, is you can, you can really see how you brought around the power of the subconscious mind, no matter what that was, that soul's journey had a start date and an end date, as all of ours do, uh, and how you treat it in between is important. And I think what you're doing is so um, important for people to look for alternatives. Uh, You know, just because you're going to a pulmonologist for your child doesn't mean that you can't try something different. And what I'd encourage my listeners who are listening today to this is, At first, if you want, just go get the book. You can get it on Amazon. We'll put a link to it. Um, Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis. And um, Ran Anbar is our guest. And please go do that. And again, to learn more about how he treats patients um, and how you can get in touch with him, go to centerpointmedicine.com. We're going to put a link to that as well. And 
Um, for the listeners who might be considering hypnosis for themselves or their children, um, what what are some of the things that you would say kind of wrapping up here that would uh, give an opportunity for us to kind of speak a little bit uh, more about, say, hey, well, they have questions. Um, I, I'm, I'm dubious about what it is that you do. And I, I really want to know more. Um, what, what, what would you tell them other than getting the book? Um, well, they can, I have another website called centerpointhypnosis.com that talks more about hypnosis. What that is, I would encourage them to check out that website. They might also check out the website of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, ASCH.net, um, that has a lot of information about hypnosis. And I would tell them there is no downside as long as your child's interested. Because if they're not interested, nothing's going to happen. As long right. as the child's interested, uh, there's only potential benefit. And if we have one more moment, if I can talk to you about the book cover briefly, I got a chance to help pick the book cover. And I went through uh, hundreds of photographs of boys and in boats on a lake, because that was where Paul used to imagine going to, on a, to relax in a lake. And after the book cover was picked, several months later, um, I was looking at uh, Bing.com and images of kids on a lake. And up come, came up a book cover in color version. And it said uh, more photos like it. And it's, it said where the photograph was taken. It was taken in Oneida Lake in New York, which was 18 miles from where Paul lived. And this is probably his lake that somehow, through Providence, I picked out out of hundreds of other photographs. It's a divine intervention there. You really did have that. Again, for my listeners, uh, thanks for taking the time today to impart some of your wisdom about hypnosis and in particular hypnosis on children um, and how you apply that. Um, We'll put links to your website. We'll put links to the book. Uh, It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Inside Personal Growth. And um, please, everybody, if you have questions, go to his website, send an email, uh, check it out. We'll put links to all of these. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.